adventure, Ice Coffee listeners. Episode 132, coming to you from a tent, though I won't say where, other than my Southern Ocean adventures kicked off from Australia rather than Argentina in the Austral summer of 2022. Besides brief mentions in episodes about whaling, noting investment in ships and shore stations, and a starring role toward the end of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, wherein Captain Pardo's tug Yelcho rescued the residents at Elephant Island, Chile hasn't got a lot of iced coffee love. I don't know that I'm about to remedy that sufficient to satisfy Chilean listeners, but this is what I've drawn together from the literature available to me. To pig ignorant outsiders such as me, Argentina and Chile are as similar as Australia and New Zealand, or the USA and Canada. And that pig-ignorant assessment likely causes Chileans or Argentines, depending on which feels more on the economic, social or sporting back foot, to resent the hell out of the pig-ignorant person making it. Careful punters know to ask what part of Canada a particular North American accent belongs to, or what part of New Zealand someone grew up in when the oceanial twang arrives in an ear untrained in the differences that stand out to a resident of the nations on either side of the Tasman Sea. Americans and Australians will enthusiastically correct the mistake and forget it ever cropped up, where a Canadian or a New Zealander, asked what state they're from or where in Australia they grew up, will respond with an icy and likely bitingly worded correction and the conversation may take some time to re-warm from the interrogative misstep, if it ever does. I don't know if the same is true of Chileans being asked what Argentine province they hail from, or vice versa but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. To an outsider, the nations in their present forms seem similar enough that the existing border, let alone disputes about it, don't make a great deal of sense. To make sense of that border, you need to understand the disparate histories of the lands either side of it. So here to explain why Chile and Argentina exist where we might otherwise label the entire southern region of South America, Patagonerica, and leave it at that, is my compare and contrast brief recounting of Chilean history to follow up episode 128's equivalent treatment of the events leading to Argentina. For my part, I'm sufficiently ignorant on all fronts, historical, linguistic, social, cultural, economic and musical, that you could drop me into any part of Santiago and tell me it's Buenos Aires, or vice versa, and it would take a lot of walking around wrestling with geography that didn't match my basic knowledge base before I realised you'd pulled a not a particularly fast one on me. So here's hoping I learn something in putting this together, and that you learn something from that effort if you're starting from a similar point of ignorance as I did. Evidence denoting the start point of human habitation in the spaces collectively known today as Chile marked the earliest known human habitation in the Americas. While the credited age of evidence ranges from 12 to 33,000 years, depending on who you heed and which radiometric dating method you give the most credence to, it all points to humans inhabiting the region at least a thousand years before the earliest known Clovis migrations across the Bering Strait. Take all this with a great big salt crystal, maybe from one of those hippie lamps, because more stuff gets dug up, dating methods improve, and dates of human habitation get pushed back further as we delve deeper and with greater archaeological and radiometric finesse. In the north, nomadic Chinchorro lived in the arid regions and left us the earliest known deliberately mummified human remains. 
Aymara farmed maize and tubers and tended herds of llamas and alpacas. Tiguita lived in the river valleys and Chango tribes fished the coastal waters. The south was occupied by Picuncha tribes of farmers and mobile cultivators, paleoanthropologists refer to as Mapuche. In the north, Incan culture made inroads both as an osmotic movement across societal boundaries and in several more definitive military campaigns, but the pre-Chileans, particularly those in the south, resisted these incursions at the furthest extent of Incan reach. Spanish horses, firearms and diseases, all of them unable to affect native populations without their common vector, Spaniards, began encroaching into what we now call Chile in 1535. Diego de Almagro led a party of his countrymen and their horses and firearms and diseases from Argentina through the Andes and into what we now call Chile. Everyone involved died, though I read one account wherein Diego returned to Peru disappointed by what he perceived as a land of poverty, at which point he was garroted by a competing Spanish imperialist and a good job too. But either way, the idea of a new settlement to the west of the Andes survived in cyst form, waiting for another Spanish host it could infect. In 1540, Pedro del Valdivia followed in Diego's dead man's footsteps and spotted that the land made up for its lack of gold and silver with almost indecent fertility. Avert your sensitive Spanish eyes while they plant these seeds. He successfully established Santiago in the Mapocho Valley. The locals didn't acquiesce and flattened the settlement and flattened the and flattened the settlement six months later. But the Spanish held on in small pockets, just long enough for their guns, germs and steel to work their dark magic on the locals. Spanish imperialism took root and kicked off what we came to eventually know as Chile. Northern and central populations of native people, already inured to concepts of slavery through the Incan incursions, adapted to newly established Spanish rule and the servitude their brutal new disease vectors put them to. Valdivia made land grants favouring the biggest suck-ups. Many of the estancias arriving from this cronyism maintaining into the late 20th century. In the south, the mobile population of Mapuche, less accustomed to being told what to do, racked up and employed horses drawn from feral populations arriving from escaped Argentine progenitors in highly effective insurgent actions against the spreading colonies. But Spain had guns, germs and steel and semen on its side, with mestizo populations of mixed racial heritage soon outnumbering the natives, their populations in decline due to the newly arrived diseases. While not treated well by the ruling Spaniards, the mestizo were treated less badly than the natives, and the gradual chipping away of relative privilege and the baubles on offer by the predominant model of trickle-down capitalism saw the native population increasingly marginalised no matter how well they applied horses and bravery in staving off the invaders. What we eventually came to know as Chile exported gold and silver, though in far smaller quantities than Argentina processed, and grew food for export, all off the back of slave labour, which as any American colonist will tell you, is the way to get rich without ever developing calluses. The diseases brought from the nominally old to the nominally new world constituted a microbial genocide of the native tribes. 
estimates are exactly that. But even at the low side, ethnographers put the percentage native population lost to Spanish microbes at 50%. Likely, it was much higher. And 90% mortality isn't a figure to, well, I never at. The declining local slave reservoir provided the demand side of the business model behind the Atlantic slave trade. The colonists couldn't enslave the corpses left in the wake of the cholera and typhoid epidemics their arrival precipitated, so they imported people in pre-corpse form, though this left many corpses in the wake of the ships that made the deliveries. Spain perceived what we now call Chile as a southern province of Peru. In the 19th century, with American-born Spaniards, referred to as Creole, agitating for greater self-governance, and Madrid seeking maximum tax revenue, the scene was set for revolution. Madrid decreed that all exports from the Southern American colonies must pass overland through Panama rather than out through the colonial ports. Geared to prevent tax evasion, the mandate hamstrung the South American colonies and further fomented revolutionary sentiment. As Simon Bolivar led his Criollo army toward Peru, the Argentine liberator Jose de San Martin led forces over the Andes and occupied Santiago. San Martin nominated Bernardo O'Higgins, the half-Irish offspring of a Peruvian viceroy and second-in-command of his revolutionary forces, to lead what we came to know as Chile once San Martin headed north to help drive Spanish sympathies out of Peru. O'Higgins continued the unlikely-sounding Chilean leadership nomenclature by hiring Scotsman Thomas Cochrane formerly an officer in the Royal Navy, to lead their nation's new navy, comprising ships taken from Spanish interests and bought off North American and British interests. Two nations always keen to trade arms to those interested in fighting the Spanish because it prevented them having to do it. O'Higgins led his adopted nation's independence in 1818 and remained its leader for five years until the landed classes rebelled against steadily increasing taxes and steadily decreasing oligarchic privileges and pushed him out of power and into exile in Peru. Tension between pro-Catholic, pro-colonial legacy conservatives and pro-secular governance, pro-independence liberals escalated in the resulting power vacuum, temporarily and ineffectually filled by a series of would-be dictators who couldn't unify enough of the workers, the military or the church to wield power for very long or very effectively. Civil war broke out in December 1829 and wound up in April 1830 in the conservative faction's favour, with many executions and exiles among their foremost opponents. Jose Tomás Aval, a neutral party deemed functionally inoffensive enough not to cause further immediate bloodshed, became president. No one, Aval included, wanted to take up the poison chalice of governing the chaos left in the wake of the Civil War, so the first effectual leader after O'Higgins was Oval's nominated Universal Minister, Diego Portales. Reading as a wish-delivered version of Niccolò Machiavelli, Portales assuaged rich, privileged people panic by restricting suffrage to landowners and instituted the 1833 Constitution, mandating an authoritarian presidential role and establishing the Catholic Church as the state religion, where previously it only held tacit power to fuck over poor people and sexually assault congregants. Never actually president, Portales acted as dictator until his rich person appeasement policies led to civil unrest. 
Portales execution in 1837 in an intrigue over Bolivian and Peruvian pushback against attempts to make Chile the dominant military power on the Pacific coast catalyzed national resolve to resist the northern nation's interference, offering Chile a more united front in the War of Confederation. Argentina and Chile both fought against the Peruvian-Bolivian Confederation during this war, though the united political and emotional front never saw the two southern nations cooperate militarily. The war featured many internal factions and cross-factional alliances on all sides and in nearly every possible combination, but the results shook out with a more defined Chile and Peru than cartographers previously mapped out. A series of conservative presidents in Portales Mole held power up until another civil war kicked off in 1851. Inspired by revolutions in Europe, the Liberals sought to oust the Conservative government and to repeal the 1833 constitution. The revolutionaries failed on both fronts. Conservative governance continued with a newly divided opposition, the Liberals having split into factions seeking power by insurgency and seeking power by continued democratic engagement. President Manuel Montt, whose sketchy election kicked off a second civil war, held power for two terms as the first non-military head of state. Depending who you read, he either governed with wisdom that laid the foundation for Chile's future prosperity, or with such a lack of competence that the Liberals finally rebelled sufficiently competently to seize power in 1861, after two years of fighting. As with revolution-distilled governments throughout the world and throughout history, the newly powerful leftists bowed to the will of the landowners and of the church, effectively becoming the wish-delivered version of the conservatives, and very little change for anyone other than those with their snouts in the trough. A four-year war with Peru and Bolivia started in 1879, and as I prepared my notes for this episode, my father drew my attention, entirely coincidentally, to a couple of paragraphs he wrote on this particular war in his book of interesting stuff. My dad's a good writer. He wrote a novel, and it's a cracker. But so far, I'm the only person who's read it, because for him, it was an exercise in teasing out an idea and enjoying, for the most part, the process, rather than getting something published. He's put my names on the various books of interesting stuff, which are, indeed, full of interesting stuff, but I'm eager to share this interesting snippet with you. So, for the first time, here's the voice of my father, Neville Allen MacArthur, in the Ice Coffee narrative. Quote. The Peruvian coastline used to extend several hundred kilometres further south than it currently does. Surprisingly, Bolivia also used to have a Pacific coastline, extending for several hundred kilometres. The Atacama Desert runs parallel to the coast over much of these regions. It contains valuable nitrate deposits, and these were being mined by Chilean companies, as well as Peruvian and Bolivian companies. When the tax demands of the Bolivian government became too strong, Chile took action. They occupied the Bolivian port of Antofagasta and invaded the desert, beginning a war with Bolivia and Peru. This War of the Pacific was instigated in part and supported by economic interests in Britain. It began in 1879 on both land and sea, the sea war being mainly against Peru, and it lasted until 1883 when Chile prevailed. 
Negotiations gave Chile the 600km coastal stretch up to Arica, and Bolivia became a landlocked country. Bolivia might, however, have the last laugh. When ammonium nitrate production was developed in the 1940s, the nitrate deposits immediately lost their value as synthetic fertilizers took over. These days, lithium-ion batteries are all the go, and the rise of electric cars is causing a rapidly increasing demand for lithium. Salar da Uyuni, a massive 1,000 square kilometer salt bed in southwest Bolivia, next to the border with Chile, has been found to contain one of the world's largest deposits of lithium salts, with an estimated value of 10 trillion US dollars. If mining can be controlled to keep the profits within the country, this could make Bolivia the most prosperous nation in South America. End quote. In pushing its borders north, Chile expanded its area by a third, and the nitrate metalload ushered in a new era of national prosperity. In 1886, José Manuel Balmaceda, former secretary to President Manuel Montt, won election to the presidency. Descended from Castilian Basque aristocracy, Balmaceda sought dictatorship, violating the constitution in his bid to consolidate power. Chilean Navy Admiral Jorge Montt nephew of the previous President Mont, coordinated one side of another civil war, this time between the army, which sided with the President, and the navy, which sought to oust him. The President shot himself in the Argentine embassy and the head, and Admiral Mont received unanimous acclaim from the victors as stand-in President for the remainder of his deceased predecessor's term. Mont won the presidency in the election that followed that term. Under Mont's leadership, the nation placed its currency on the gold standard, reformed the structure and increased the efficiency of Chile's armed forces and, with Argentine cooperation, drew Great Britain in as arbiter over border disputes between the two Patagonian nations, which to me seems like inviting a vampire to judge the Miss Swan-like neck competition. They might have the self-control and decorum necessary to not exsanguinate all the contestants during the event, but you can be sure they're networking hard and taking note of names and addresses. The system of governance Portales established remained in place until 1925. The years between the 1891 Civil War and 1925 featured much bullshit and rapid turnovers in Congress and Parliament, but when viewed with hindsight from the late 20th century, appeared a heyday of stability. The government held effective control of the military after Mont's revisions curtailed the worst excesses of the previously coup-prone army and the mutinous navy. Suffrage expanded beyond the landed gentry, and the civil liberties of the population received greater respect than under previous governors, so long as you weren't a native or a peasant. Or a native peasant. Native people didn't receive any rights under the colonial governments, and it wasn't until the late 1980s that legislation passed recognising native descent as an important aspect of Chilean cultural heritage. But back to the peasants, for now. Peasants during this era found it increasingly difficult to earn a living on the land, and many moved north to work in the nitrate mines. As with most 20th century mining in the pre-Union era, the mines constituted a debt slavery trap. Absent transport by which to commute to the job, Workers lived in mining towns owned by the same company as owned the pit they hacked the value out of. This effectively made the miners the property of the mine. 
paid poorly in company tokens only recognised as tender in the company store. The miners couldn't earn enough to ever leave the job once they started. Strikes were met with military force and the murder of all organisers and a lot of other miners and their families. Actions reminiscent of decimation in the Roman legions. Leave enough strong backs to get the work done, but kill enough people to ensure your message is received loud and clear. Anarchists seeking grassroots determination to get people out from under the oppression sparked the Chilean Union Movement. The labour unions ran more towards socialist doctrine after that kickstart, and labour-based political parties found inspiration in and boosting from the Soviet Union, once that was a thing, which I'll deal with in a future episode. The miners weren't immediately miraculously cured of all ills, but the military firing on crowds of civilians with machine guns eased up a bit. Unions. Better than government-sanctioned and mediated mass murder. Depressed nitrate sales during the First World War negatively affected the entire economy. Inflation ran away and formed a major, but not the only factor, prompting a military coup in 1924 that kicked off an incredibly volatile period in which ten governments came to power in the span of eight years. The Great Depression hit the nation especially hard during this time, Chile's economy being based almost entirely on exported mineral wealth and food, and this didn't aid stability any. The Chilean Air Force kicked off in 1930 in spite of the depressed economy, and they will re-enter the narrative before this episode's done. A new middle-class political party, the Radicals, gained popularity during the eight years of unrest and held power for the bulk of the two decades beyond them. Chilean women got voting rights in 1934. And on that topic, a quick update on Argentina, which gave women the vote in 1947. During the Second World War, Chile remained neutral in spite of vigorous urging to join the Allied fight against the Axis nations by the USA. While not as readily pro-Nazi as Argentina, the nation's unwillingness to join the war effort stood as a black mark against Chile in the eyes of post-isolationist Americans. Chile worked hard to shape that legacy and align with the USA in the Cold War that followed. The claimed Chilean Antarctic Territory called Tierra de O'Higgins by Chileans, incorporates the Antarctic Peninsula, part of Ellsworth Land and the South Shetlands, and follows the orange segment sector model originally proposed for Antarctica by Sir Clements Markham, and adopted by all claimant nations except, until recently, Norway. The claim, extending further west than, but in the main part overlapping with, claims made by Great Britain and Argentina, arose in a Chilean government decree issued in November 1940 and largely in response to the rushed Norwegian claim in 1939, itself given the spurs by the voyage of the Schwabenland and the nascent Nazi imperial ambitions that expedition represented. The Chilean claim is managed by the municipality Cabo de Horno, seated in Puerto Williams on the shores of the Beagle Strait, and mostly rests on proximity. But a 16th century dialogue between Pedro de Valdivia, leader of the then Governorate de Chile, and the Council of the Indies, is cited as a legal precedent granting all land to the south of the Straits of Magellan to Valdivia's successor, Geronimo de Alderarte. Also, the Antarctic receives a couple of mentions as belonging to the new colony in a Spanish epic poem, 
So Chilean claim its status stands as better than the British territorial gambits based on discovery, but not by much. A document arising from Dutch sailor Lawrence Klaus, taking part in a series of voyages by Spanish mariner Gabriel de Castilla, seeking to prevent Dutch privateers operating to the south of Patagonia and kicking off in 1603 from Valparaiso, reads, quote, sailed under the Admiral Don Gabriel of Castile with three ships along the coast of Chile towards Valparaiso and from there to the Strait. In March of 1603, he reached 64 degrees and they had a lot of snow there. In the following April, they returned back to the coast of Chile. Impressive stuff if the date and the latitude run true, but the journal entry features too little detail to confirm anything beyond the sailors knew the weather grew colder the further south they travelled. A sketchy portrait of southern achievements and discovery, but considered important as part of Chile's Antarctic legacy within Chile. Otto Nordenfeld's request for Chilean permission to operate in Chilean waters during his 1902 passage south is cited as evidence of Chilean administration to the claimed area. In 1906, the Whaling Society of Magallanes, based in Punta Arenas, received a decree permitting settlement in the South Shetlands. The company established a camp and a coal depot at Whalers Bay, Deception Island, to support Chilean vessels operating further south. Jean-Baptiste Charcot bunkered coal from the Chilean interest in 1908, and the Chilean flag flew on site until the operation closed shop in 1914. Chilean sailors served on whale chasers and factory vessels in Antarctic waters, and Chile claims the first woman to winter in Antarctica when Norwegian chaser boats stayed at Deception Island, one of the captain's wives being a Chilean national. Chile's first Antarctic hero the nation could celebrate in bronze form came to the fore in 1916 when Sir Ernest Shackleton commissioned Luis Pardo and his vessel, the lighthouse supply tug Yelcho, to rescue the 22 ITAE members toughing it out on Elephant Island. The successful operation made Pardo a household name around the world, briefly, and in Chile to this day. The Elcho's prow is preserved in Puerto Williams as a reminder that Chile was all about the Antarctica since way back. Then the nation didn't do much about Antarctica until the Territorial Claim Decree in 1940. Argentina and Britain issued protest decrees based on their overlapping territorial claims based on their own precedents. For more on which, see episodes, lots of them. Finn Ronnie threw a spanner in US foreign policy when his RARE sought Chilean permission to operate in their waters, tacitly accepting the Chilean territorial claim to O'Higgins land and the surrounding sea in order to smooth the expedition's passage through their ports and to grease victualling palms. He also accepted Jorge de Giorgio Valdez aboard his ship as steward's mate. While this lowly role disgusted the high-born Chilean youngster, it served his nation well, offering up the first Chilean to winter below the Antarctic Circle. On the orders of President Gabriel González Videla, elected in 1946, the Chilean Navy responded to Operation Tabarin and similar Argentine naval operations with an Antarctic expedition between mid-January and late March in 1947. The Chilean Navy tasked the project to the Danish-built, Nazi-captured, Allies war-reparated supply vessel Angamos and the Canadian-built and Royal Canadian Navy-employed anti-submarine frigate Iquique II, both bought as war surplus 
when even the slightest off-the-cutting-edge weapons and logistics technology went under the auctioneer's hammer at bargain basement prices. Commodoro Federico Gesalaga Toro led the show. Under Gesalaga Toro, Frigate Captain Ernesto Gonzalez Navarrete commanded the Akike 2 and Frigate Captain Gabriel Rojas Parker commanded the Angamos. The professional and scientific contingent of this first Chilean Antarctic outing comprised Oscar Pinochet de la Barra, later a founding member of the Chilean Antarctic Institute in 1962 and its director between 1990 and 2003, who sailed as a representative of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, geographer Eusebio Flores, cinematographer Hernan Correa, and journalist Francisco Coloane, pro-Nazi diplomat and prominent Chilean white supremacist Miguel Serrano, for some reason, journalist Oscar Villalabra, authors Eugenio Orego Cuna and Enrico Bunster, professor of geology at the University of Concepcion, Carlos Oliver Schneider, seeking evidence of a continuation of the Andes in Antarctic mountains, veterinarian and biologist Guillermo Mann, studying vertebrate parasites, glaciologist Humberto Barrera of the University de Chile, studying global climate change of all things, in addition to making a series of magnetic observations, and marine biologists Professor Parmenio Yanez Andrade, concerned mostly with algal diversity, and Juan Lengarech, concerned with fisheries, both of the University of Chile, and who sailed with their technicians, Pedro Brandt and Carlos Cabal. French naturalist Guy Robin, which sounds like a name a bird might make up if it sought to infiltrate human society, sailed as an international guest, by which the expedition might tacitly gain international recognition, and collected faunal samples. The expedition photographic record arose from the camera of German refugee Hans Heifritz. A composer and musicologist, Heifritz incurred Nazi wrath for making documentaries about indigenous music in the Middle East and Asia that didn't conform to Joseph Goebbels' mandate that non-Aryan people and cultures be automatically portrayed as inferior to the stock from which that big-eared, pasty, thin-faced streak of piss arose. Heifritz already on ship terms with the Nazis and gay on top of this lack of overt racism in his work, got out of Dodge in 1939 to escape the rapidly escalating persecution of minorities and dissidents. That's a fair-sized digression, but I always take an opportunity to kick uphill at Nazis. Heifritz took Chilean citizenship in 1940 and applied his photographic experience to documenting the first Chilean government incursion to Antarctica and I hope his presence in the team rankled Serrano Fernandez because Nazis can eat shit and die. Chilean Air Force First Lieutenant Arturo Parodi Oester sailed aboard the Angamos to pilot a Vought Kingfisher float plane in scouting operations. Originally purchased by the Chilean Navy, the senior service handed the airframes over to the Air Force when they couldn't field the expertise to keep them serviceable. The expedition established Soberania Meteorological and Radiotelegraphic Station, or Sovereignty Base, its name carrying a secret message about the reason for its existence, on the shores of Discovery Bay on Greenwich Island in the South Shetlands on the 6th of February 1947. The small base housed meteorologists, 
radio operators, a nurse and a cook in its first iteration. The six volunteers being drawn from the Chilean Navy and led by First Lieutenant Boris Ratomir Oleg Kropiatik O'Neill. O'Neill's team saw out the first Chilean government-backed winter in Antarctica, remaining at Sovereignty Base until December 1947. Among the edifices now considered heritage sites and monuments by the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Committees, the Chileans erected a concrete monolith to act as a reference point for hydrographic surveys, a bust of 19th century Chilean naval hero Arturo Pratt, after whom the base is now named, and a statue of the Virgin of Carmel, whose spiritual succour I failed to recount in episode 108. Commodoro Gesalaga Toro inaugurated the station with the stirring speech, quote, now it is your turn, sailors of Chile, for one of those fortunate whims with which fate tends to favour, to give rise to the inspiration of God and of men, allowing us to anchor our flag here and sing our national hymn with the anointing deeper and the strongest intention that as long as there is a ship at sea on whose stern our flag flies, there will be only one Chile, from Arica to Antarctica. End quote. Only he said it in Spanish. The base served as a permanent Chilean presence until 2004, at which point the Chilean Navy pulled its support. It continues in the role of an occasional summer station. First Lieutenant Perodi Alistair made the first Chilean flight in Antarctica on the 15th of February, taking the Kingfisher float plane aloft more for ceremonial purposes than for scouting. Because if you carried an airframe and crew all that way, you have to put them to task and chalk up that first, or why you even in Antarctica? Oh, wait. Science and weather forecasting and furthering human blah blah blah. Silly me. After departing Discovery Bay, the expedition made calls at Deception Island, Port Lockroy, the Melchior Islands and Marguerite Bay. This last constituting the first crossing of the Antarctic Circle by a Chilean flagged vessel and accounting for some of the damage done to East Base that Finn Ronnie blamed on the occupants of Trapassi House. Guillermo Mann published Biology of the South American Antarctic in 1948 off the back of his work during the voyage, the first Spanish-language publication on the topic. Enrique Punster wrote Correspondent of Antarctica, recounting the expedition as part of the national historical narrative. Miguel Serrano Fernandez's Antarctic legacy comprised the first instance of hypotheses that Adolf Hitler survived the siege of Berlin and took refuge in the Chilean Antarctic sector. This was largely based on the influence of his drinking buddy, the French-born, half-Greek, Indian mystic and fascist, Savitri Devi. Devi spied for the Nazis in India during the war and sought to align Nazi and Hindu mythologies because she was a fucking nutter. She became a prominent member of the neo-Nazi underground in the wake of the utter defeat of her worship ideology. Devi convinced many of her acolytes that Adolf Hitler was the avatar of a returned Hindu deity giving Serrano Fernandez the first piece in his jigsaw puzzle without borders or a picture on the front. Because their Nazi mystic religion made identifying any signal in any noise possible, the credulous Serrano Fernandez got his fascist ice capades idea up and running based on no evidence beyond Antarctica existing, and anomaly hunters and conspiracy theorists filled in the gaps with UFOs and a short sharp war between the ice Nazis and Operation High Jump allegedly ending in a nuclear strike against the fascists, closing off their subglacial headquarters from the surface. The end. Or is it? When you're working without your ideas needing to map the demonstrable truths, you can take your story anywhere you want it to go. 
Neo-Nazis look to Serrano Fernandez's written legacy as a tranche of esoteric Hitlerism second only to that left by Savitri Devi, which is interesting if you're into comparing who has the largest pile of imaginary poo to sit atop. The following Austral summer, a second expedition relieved the crew at Sovereignty Base and established Base Libertador General Bernardo O'Higgins Requiem at Cape Legupil on the Trinity Peninsula. On the 18th of February 1948, President Gabriel González Videla presided over an inauguration ceremony, making him the first national head of state to visit Antarctica. If you discount the carbon monoxide addled dreams of grandeur, I think likely played across the inner cinema screen of Richard Byrd's brain during his time in advanced base. Operated by the Chilean army to this day, the base stands as one of the longest continuous human presences in the Antarctic. I recounted the encounter between the Chileans and the FIDs making the traverse from Hope Bay in episode Tumpty Tum. The expedition erected a bust of Bernardo O'Higgins on the shoreline, now recognised as a historic monument, and I mentioned the base in episode 108 as the site of an ice grotto church. In 1948, Chile and Argentina drew up an agreement to mutually protect their overlapping Antarctic territorial claims. They might not agree with one another about which nation owned what expanses of land or sea, but they'd be damned if any outsiders tried to contest the Patagonian sovereignty of those expanses of land and sea within the extreme borders of the dual claims. Are you listening, Britain? Britain wasn't listening. In 1949, two Chilean Air Force Vought Kingfishers flew to the relief of Sovereignty Base, sea ice having prevented the Navy from making progress into Discovery Bay. One of the airframes involved in this operation, in a later series of flights over the Antarctic Peninsula, is preserved at the National Aeronautical and Space Museum of Chile. I feel laid off the blocks giving Chile some historical background and Antarctic narrative, but Chile was late to the Antarctic party too, so there's some balance there. It's like poetry. It rhymes. This episode, I'd like to thank Dr John Gastineau, a physicist who sent me a book about optical phenomena. Many of the images of said phenomena, the author, Robert Greenland, sourced during his time in Antarctica, and it makes for great reading for someone who understands light in only the dimmest manner, and whose colour vision makes rainbows appear in only blue and yellow arcs. I can't see some of the prismatic glory on show in the images, but it's nice to read that the full spectrum remains present in spite of my not clocking it. Thanks very much for listening, for getting in touch, and for your generous gift, Dr John. I owe you a bibliography that 2022 is crazier than 2021 and I'm not making much progress on projects that don't earn. Even knocking out my poultry one episode a month is presently a challenge. The email address you contacted me on fell off the internet, so I'll ping you with one that works for further correspondence. Rainbows, Halos and Glories, Robert Greenler, 1980. Five stars. Recommended reading for the optically curious. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is to be avoided.